Hello and welcome to the ARC 360 podcast brought to you in association with corporate partners BASF, BMS, CAPS, Copart, Emacs, Integral, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, Innovation Group, Merca, Nationwide Vehicle Recovery Assistance, S&G Response and Sherwin-Williams, as well as our partners Aztec, the Green Part Specialists, Indasa and Presco UK. Welcome along to the ARC 360 podcast with me, your host, Mark Hadaway. Today, we have the pleasure of catching up with the Volkswagen Group UK body shop development manager, Franco Ionotta, who shares with us how his love of cars and a passion for knowing how things work got him started in the automotive sector, landing him his dream job over 25 years ago. Fast forward, and Franco is now involved in a host of aftermarket activity, including crash testing, insurance ratings, and post-collision vehicle management. He talks passionately about his interests in F1 and how the technology there finds its way into the mass market and also his unwavering desire to understand stuff which stems from his enthusiasm for, nonetheless, astrophysics. Enjoy the conversation. Lovely. Okay, so welcome along, Franco. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. How are you, my friend? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Mark. How are you? Good man, I am very well, thank you. Suffering a little bit with hay fever, so I apologise if there's a few snuffles throughout this, but uh, hey-ho, it's the way of the world at the moment. As I say, thanks very much for joining us. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, really, you know, your career to date, and, and how did you get to be where you are today within VW? Yeah, cool. I've been in the motor trade since I left school, really, which was 1989. Feels like a, a, a lifetime ago, but uh, kind of got into the industry because I just had a massive interest in cars. And, and I remember from a really young age, just hanging around outside the back end of workshops and seeing what I think was at the time, you know, Golf GTI Mark 1s and Mark 2s up in the air and ramps. And I thought, oh, I'd love to get underneath those. So, yeah, so I started my career actually while I was still at school. I started as a part-time mechanic 1987 I think it was so two years just before I left school and uh, and yeah I remember you know the school bell going off at 315 and me running home as fast as I could I'll get home for about 330 I'll be on my push bike straight down into my workplace which was about two miles away and then sweep the floor from four o'clock till six and make the tea and so yeah I've been in the motorcade for, for quite some time. Good man so did you used to play around were you a bit of a boy racer back in the day then? Oh, God, yes, absolutely. I, I, I was into go-karts and anything that I could race. We stripped down a car for banging racing. It was a Ford Cortina, if I remember right. And we took the glass out of it. We put roll cages in it. And then we went banger racing. I never got to drive it with my colleague. That was, he was actually my Jedi master, if you like. He was the one who taught me the ropes. And I was working with him. And he got to smash it up around the circuit, if I remember rightly. Yeah, so I've always been interested in it. So from those initial steps then, so you've obviously made your, your way into sort of a, a, a workshop, so to speak. And then, and then where did, you know, where, where did the sort of travel of uh, trajectory take you from that point on? So it's about, about 1990 when I got into the trade. I qualified as an apprentice around 93, 94 back in those days. And I did really well and I could fix cars to quite a high level, to a really high quality. And customer satisfaction back in those days was, you know, given to you at the time when the cars were picked up. There was no internet, I guess, back in those days. So I always did a good job and I always felt proud about everything I did. So towards the end of that decade, about 1997, I had an opportunity to go it alone. And, and I think that kind of catapulted me into a different world whereby it's not just about repairing the car anymore. It's about servicing what customers want. And that was a real learning curve for me, dealing with tax, dealing with banks, dealing with cash flow. We never did any of that when we was on the spanners, you know. So, uh, so yeah, I learned quite a lot from that. And then it was about 1998. Um, I, I was repairing a car for a guy that worked at Volkswagen, Volkswagen Group UK. And I built a relationship 
with him over a space of about a year and a half. And eventually he offered me a job at Volkswagen and said, would you like to come and work for us? And we could do it, guys, with your skill set. So it was about then that I landed my dream job at a vehicle manufacturer's Volkswagen Group, United Kingdom, beautiful product. And back in those days, the product line was relatively small. You know, in Volkswagen, we just had a, a Polo, a Golf, a Passat. And I think the Volkswagen Beetle came along shortly after. Audi only had the Audi A3, the Audi A4 and A6. You know what I mean? The, the model lineups were really, really small back in those days. And you compare to what you've got today, you know, there's a vast difference between the pair. So, yeah, I landed my dream job about 1999 and I've enjoyed it ever since. What a story. When you say you were on the spanners and in terms of your apprenticeship, was it a mechanical that you were always involved it in? It was. Yeah, yeah, it was a mechanical. Brief period into body. But then I went back to mechanical when I set up my own business uh, before I left to go into Volkswagen. Okay, so there's probably a bit more of a tale to tell there in terms of how you've expanded out into uh, the role where you are today. But, um, you know, tell us a little bit then, I suppose, about you know, the day job, where it started exactly. And, and obviously things have changed somewhat to, to where you are today, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I've worked at Volkswagen now since, like I said, it's, it's, it's nearly, you know, over 20 years. And originally I started off in the warranty department and I was able to read job cards and walk through what technicians were doing to repair cars. But there was a bit of a breakthrough in 2003 where a guy that was doing a job called insurance ratings manager left and it created a bit of a void inside a Volkswagen group. And they were looking for somebody that had the skill set to understand the insurance industry, crash testing, Thatcham and all those sorts of things. And I kind of stepped in to bridge that gap. And I learned actually really quickly that that six months that nobody was doing that job, some of the new cars that we'd launched couldn't get insured because we didn't provide the data that the insurance industry needed to insure those cars. So you would ring up and say, I've got this new car. I think the Volkswagen Bohrer rings a bell. That was one of them. I don't know if you remember the Volkswagen Bohrer when that came out, which is called the Jetta, I think, in America. And we were getting customers that were ringing us and saying, I'm trying to insure this car, but the insurance industry says that it doesn't exist. And then we quickly learned that actually we need somebody in this role that can work with Thatcher and the insurance industries and so on. And that's where I kind of came in. And it honestly felt like a busman's holiday at that point. I absolutely understood exactly what the needs were of the insurers, exactly what the needs were of Thatcher and what we needed to do for our customers to keep the cost of insurance down and ultimately allowing them to insure our cars. So, yeah, I absolutely love that. So that was kind of uh, my breakthrough. But what it also led to was, you know, the crash testing that we do, we don't do that here in the UK. We do that abroad in the factories. And there isn't a factory in Europe that I've not been to because all these cars are being built at those production lines and are being crashed at those production lines. And I'm there to witness it. And with all that data, I categorize it all up and provide it back to the insurance industry. It's a job that, that I feel I've kind of slotted into like a hand in a glove. I always cast my mind back to having seen a, a live crash test and I'm always amazed. I don't know if it still fascinates you having seen so many over the years, but uh, I'm blown away by the, by by when I saw that live and it was just incredible. And I'd recommend anyone who gets a chance to have a, have a watch of these things to go and have a look. I don't think there's a car since 2003 that Volkswagen have launched that I haven't seen crashed. And we are talking hundreds and hundreds of cars, including expensive stuff like the Audi R8. You know, I remember when that first launched, I saw that being crashed as well. Not a lot damaged on it because all the engine is at the back. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of cars. But then also security testing as well. We've done Batchum Category 1, which is alarm and immobiliser combination approval since 1995. I think we started working with Batchum, Volkswagen did. So obviously I came in at 2003 and there's been hundreds of cars of those. 
attack testing on doors, hammers and screwdrivers into door knocks to try to force the doors to open and steering columns to break. So, uh, so yeah, I've, um, I, I've really enjoyed myself, actually. And, uh, and, and, and while it still forms a small part of my job today, about 30% is still group rating. Um, I've got an undergrad that manages all the data stuff, but I still do all the factory things. So I still fly out to the factory, do all the fun stuff. Um, and then I've got my undergrad, who's Javier at the moment. He does all of the admin stuff, which is, you know, all the numbers and the providing the data sheets to the insurers. So, yeah, still going pretty strong with that. SMMT, you're involved there as well, I understand. Yeah, I sit on a couple of working groups. Um, I sit on the body repair working group. You know, fantastic piece of work that we did there was to change the code of conduct for the salvage industry. So we went from a code which was A, B, C, and D. So if you remember those, or those listeners certainly will know them, to uh, A, B, S, and N, structural and non-structural, which made a lot more sense. So again, we moved away from A, B, C, D, which was based around the calculation of the value of the vehicle versus the amount of damage it had done. It had nothing to do with it, you know, how bad the car was damaged, whether it was structural damage or not. It was just based on a calculation to today's rules, which are based on a physical test as to whether there's structural damage or not. So people know what they're buying. You know, when it gets into the salvage industry, the salvagers, they know whether it's got structural damage or not. And I think it makes perfect sense. So, yeah, I've really enjoyed that. And I also sit on another SMT working group, which is all to do with vehicle security and insurance. So it's keeping your likes of Batcham in check and also the insurers as well, because obviously they want so much data and some of the data we just can't provide. And as an industry, we work together to, you know, educate the insurers on what we can do and what we can't do and so on. You know, when you think about quick rating, it's not just Volkswagen Group alone, it's the whole of the UK vehicle manufacturers. And it makes sense that as the whole of the UK vehicle manufacturers, we go back with one voice. So, yeah, I've seen quite a few changes with that as well. But, and and there's, still, there's still always plenty to do because there's always, you know, change. And that change requires more data. And that data requires us to do something a little bit different. So that's still ongoing. And it's great to kind of see that collaboration at that higher level amongst, you know, not only yourselves, but other vehicle manufacturers, you know, linking the two sides of the story together and keeping everyone in the loop, really. And that's that's a great thing. So, you know, I know a little bit about you and you kind of, you know, touched upon various bits there within VW Group, I suppose, vehicle manufacturers as a whole, technology, data, all this kind of stuff. And that all spills over quite nicely into um, one of your keen passions, because I'm keen to understand a little bit more about the boy racer in you. But you're a big fan of f1 so tell us a little bit about your, your fascination with f1 and and i know you kind of link it back to the day job a little bit in terms of you know things that start to flow through from that level down to what we might see on today's vehicles yeah and that's what really attracted me all those years ago i could see the technologies of the 80s that those cars were filtering into road cars and i could see it coming that the cycle was about 10 years you'll see it in an f1 car and then 10 years later you'll see it on the road and, and it just hooked me so from around early 80s, I was just over 10 years old at the time. Um, I, I just loved the sport. And, and I just loved then seeing the transition of Formula One cars into supercars and then supercars into normal everyday cars. And, and I could see it coming and, and, and I just absolutely loved it. And then when I'd watch the races, it still startles me today that they're just like a tenth of a second up at each split. And they're able to carry that forward to the second split. And then they cross the line and the excitement lasts. When you watch football, they score the goal, you cheer, and then you watch the replay and then you sit back down again. But with Formula One, a lap time is about, what, two minutes, give or take. And you get to experience that high for that whole two minutes. Split one. Look, Schumacher, he's 10th up. And it was like, oh, my God, you're getting on the edge of your seat. 
and, and it was just that exhilaration that I absolutely loved. And then obviously seeing the technology roll into your Lamborghinis and your Ferraris and your, you know, and your Audis back in those days. And it was just fantastic. But I was always into racing, sort of touched on it before. I was always a keen carter. I raced carts from about 1985. I was probably about 13 at the time, till I was about 18, 19. And then when my employer at the time had a rally car, and they even allowed me to do one of the stages. It was an untimed stage. It was more of a check your tyres type stage. But I got to have a go, and boy, was that hard. So it was once, such an experience that I've never forgotten. But it was so hard, Mark. It was so hard. I take my hat off to anyone that does rally driving. Their foot techniques, you know, they should go and come dancing or strictly come dancing, whatever that's about. <laughs> they should go on that because it's just beautiful. I quickly learned that it's just way too hard. And then I went back to carting again because that was what I was good at. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, I absolutely love that. Um, and also as well on the, you know, on the mental side as well, thinking about how F1 drivers think, you know, I remember listening to a podcast from Jensen Button, it's probably about 10 years ago now, and it was the mind of a Formula One driver and how he thinks, how he prepares, how he, you know, applies that to training, how he applies that to the race, how it's it just fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Those guys are just awesome. The mind and the psychology of a sports person is something else. And, and interestingly, I've had a, I did have a, a drive in a rally car myself, and I would echo everything you've said there. I found that going sideways in a car is quite quite taxing and quite testing, in fairness. So uh, didn't quite take to it like a duck to water, that's for sure. So I suppose linking back then to, to the F1, you know, everything that's going on there. And you've already said, you know, the technology kind of then bleeds through into the mass market for motoring. So what, what's coming now, you know, across? What are we likely to see? We talk an awful lot about ADAS, obviously electric vehicles and things now, but you probably see it all firsthand. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I've been immersed in it for the last, you know, four or five, six years with the group rating side of the business that I do because the cars that we're looking at there are maybe two, sometimes three years ahead of market launch. And when it's new technology or, you know, especially this is a electric vehicles aren't really new technology. They've been around a long time. But the, the electric vehicle ranges that are coming today are extremely new. And also preparing those vehicles is really, really different. So we always associate as electric vehicles are coming. But what we're trying to say is the industry is changing. That's what we're trying to say. This isn't something that you could just slot into your cutlery drawer you know we're going to get a new fork just slot into the same place as before we need an entire new approach to the industry and some of the cars that i've been working with at, at, at volkswagen group you know we've already said that by 2023 a third of all of our sales are going to be electric vehicles by 25 half of the sales and so on and then obviously we're going to get to a point where they all need to be electric vehicles and we've launched some fantastic stuff i mean the skoda born you know it, the pictures are out there now just google it have a look at it it's absolutely fantastic the ID range is now starting to mature. We launched the ID3, when was that? A year and a half ago, maybe a year ago. ID4 is out now. ID5 won't be too far behind it. You know, we've got the Audi Q4 as well, soon to be arriving. And then the new Cooper range. While that isn't an electric vehicle range, it's still worth mentioning that we're still pushing our brands and we're still launching innovative new products. And that Cooper range is absolutely fantastic. While we're launching all these EV cars and you were talking about the technology and so on and ADAS, we shouldn't forget that actually what we're launching is an entirely new industry, an entirely new approach to repairing these cars. If you get an electric vehicle into your workshop and the warning lights are on, you know, it's good practice that you park the car in a safe place. So now you need to have different space inside your workshop and a different space outside. 
Because if the battery's been compromised, you don't want to put it inside. It needs to be outside in a what we call a quarantine zone. So these are things that repairers need to start thinking about. We can't approach the repair of an electric vehicle in the same way as we did with petrol and diesel. They are really different things. Lots of people talk about, you know, the investment in tool and equipment. They think it's all about cost. Well, do you know what? We're in a little bit of a transition period. Remember the old VHS and Betamax days is always a winner. So we are going to be launching some technology that may take some technology, might get dropped and so on and so on. And there's always going to be an investment in tooling and equipment. But it ain't just about tooling and equipment. It's about your facility and it's about your staff as well. And it's about training and getting people to understand that there's a lot more electric components around the car than, you know, than they can imagine. So the whole thing really there is changing is the, um, the point I wanted to make. But it's always worth remembering why we're making those changes. And it's not just the vehicle manufacturers that are pushing all of this. We've got, you know, government agencies around the world that are pushing for driverless technology, you know, and that's level five in the world of descriptions on where we are in autonomous driving. You know, level five won't come till probably 2040 onwards, 2045 maybe. It's quite a long way down the road. At the moment, we're at level two, but our cars are capable to drive at level three. So as a recap, level two, your car can go down the motorway, it speeds up, slows down, and it can make small steering changes to stay in lane. That's level two. But the car can already achieve level three. The only difference is, is that legislation hasn't allowed us to take your hand off the steering wheel and let the car drive for you know miles and miles and miles. Today, you let your hand off the steering wheel, it beeps at you after 20 seconds. So you need to take back control again. So it's literally hands off, hands back on again. That's kind of all you're allowed to do. But with the work that I do at the factory for Volkswagen Group, I'm seeing level four technology. We're working on steer by wire, shift by wire, and brake by wire. That's level four stuff. You know, I might be working on steer by wire, shift by wire, brake by wire, but actually what that means, that's a level four world. You can imagine now the steering wheel disappearing because there is no steering column. You can imagine the brake pedal not needing to be there. That's a level four world. And that's where we are today. And at some point, the government agencies around the world will catch up and say, we're ready for level three now. That makes vehicle manufacturers ready for level three too. And we're also working on level four. We're always kind of one step ahead. So all of this technology isn't being driven by vehicle manufacturers. It's really being driven by what legislation will allow us to do, what electronic companies are being developed and want to deploy out there, what customers want. And then ultimately, the roadmap that we're on that will take us to a level five world. We need to be ready for that. An amazing insight there. And you, yourselves probably being one of many who are working on kind of similar technologies and at similar stage of development. So it just goes to show, you know, where, where we are as an industry. And it probably you know comes as no surprise to many listening in, in terms of how the industry's moved at such a pace and is continuing to move at such a rate. But fascinating, nonetheless, to hear it from yourself there, Franco. So, so great insight. Now, I know all of this, knowing you, it probably fits into your wider enjoyment in life because, uh you're a bit of a science buff, aren't you? You, you kind of, you've got lots of hobbies and they do fascinate me. So tell us a little bit about kind of what you get up to outside of work. Uh, astrophysics. I love looking up at the stars and, you know, from a really young age, I remember listening to, to Patrick Moore and, you know, he wrote so many books all those years ago. Yes, I've always loved that. And, and I think what really hooked me was I spotted the Andromeda galaxy a long time ago and looked at it for a telescope. And it was actually quite big in a telescope. It's, it's, while it's far away, inside of a telescope, it just appears as a big blobby thing. And, and, and I remember researching it and it's 285 million light years away. And I remember looking at it for a telescope and thinking, what I'm looking at now is 285 million years ago. 285 million years is a long time. 
I'm pretty sure that it doesn't look like that now. Stuff like that. And when you start researching other parts of our galaxy and stars and clusters and oh just loved it absolutely loved it so that's kind of our off really with the children I, we, we would disappear with a telescope out into the fields we, we we go to lots of science lectures as well yeah I love all of that sort of side of it and, and, and I really love practical ways of thinking and there are so many examples with astronomers and theoretical thinkers that give example of that you know an example is Edwin Hubble he was the first guy to spot galaxies out there he was then able to measure the distances of how far they were away. And he worked out that these galaxies aren't part of our Milky Way. But he could measure where the stars were. And he could see that some of these galaxies were much further away than the stars that we got close to us. So he was then able to work out that actually we live inside of a cluster of stars, which is called a galaxy. And we are looking at other Plus, or he was looking at other clusters of stars outside of our galaxy. He did that by triangulization. And this is what really fascinated me. At the time, I mean, you know you can measure things by triangulizing. We've heard that so many times. How would you do that back in the, whenever he was alive, 400 years ago? But do you know how we did it? Well, he waited from day one, January, oh, I'm not sure the dates, but we'll use this as an example. So January the 1st, he would look at his galaxy that he'd spotted out there and take a measurement. He would then wait six months later and take a second measurement. And he used the Earth going around the sun as the triangulization process. So on one point, January, it was here, halfway through the year, the Earth was over there, and it was able to project the triangle to measure the distances of these galaxies. And that's why they named the Hubble Telescope after him. It's such a simple approach, isn't it, to solving a problem? And, and that's the sort of things that I love. You know, I, I, I do like looking at something and thinking, how can we simply approach that problem and solve it? Sometimes we make things a bit too complicated. You're probably in the absolutely right job then in terms of what you do with your links up with the security and, and everything else and the crash test inside of the world. It is just making that, uh, taking something and, and looking at how you can improve it. And I know you you, you tinker with cars still in, in sort of your own time as well at the moment. Oh, yeah. I, um, myself and the children, I didn't really help to be honest with you, but it was nice that they came in to bring me an odd cup of tea every now and then. But we built our own car in the garage. It's called a Chesil Speedster. It's quite a well-known brand, actually. If you Google Chesil Speedster, it's a replica of a Porsche 356. I built one of those in my garage. <laughs> it was a four-year process, but, you know, I took it from zero to hero. And it started off with a chassis of a Volkswagen Beetle that shortened by 10 and three quarters inches just behind the handbrake. So it brings the front wheels back. It starts off with that chassis. And while it was just a chassis on the floor, that's when the boys got interested in it because they could see how brakes work, how a clutch, because it was just there in front of you. So we could push levers and you could see the clutch mechanism moving at the back. You push the brake pedal. You can't see the fluid going through the pipes, but you can imagine the fluid going because you could see the pipes. It's such different technology. I mean, that chassis is a 1969. So, you know, it's fairly straightforward. It's fairly basic. But like I said, hasn't changed that much okay we talked about steer by wire and brake by wire but we're still using brake fluid today we're still using brake fluid it's still the same method of pushing and hydraulics pushing brake fluid down the tube so the the science was exactly the same we had we had a great time we built that in the garage and we also measured the steering angle of a turning circle so that i could prove to them that one wheel turns at a different speed than the other you know and it just gets them thinking and, and, and i wish there was more about you know more stuff that was done like this um, we just don't get the time today. We're following methods and we're removing and we're refitting and so on. But we never really get to ask ourselves, why? Why is it there? What's it there to do? What problem does it solve? Why does it need to be like this? Why do I need to do tracking? Why is forward alignment so important? We just operate in making a number go green. 
So it will say, when that number goes green, you can stop turning your spanner. You kind of forget why you're doing it. But we got lots of training in Volkswagen and some of that training goes into this detail. And I specified it. I said, look, I don't just want to teach our technicians and our future technicians and METs on how to turn a number that is red into a number that is green. They need to know why they're doing it. And we need to really labor that point because then they can get to understand what they're looking to achieve by making that number green. So it really does make a hell of a difference. Really interesting observations and, and you know, probably aligns quite nicely with where we are as an industry as a whole, learning all these new things at the moment. You know, we're kind of all in it together. And, and I'm sure as uh, as the industry evolves, we will get to that point where everyone, you know, fully understands it. Or at least, um, you know, we, we start to get to grips with it a little bit more rather than just focusing on the, the red to green, as you class it as. So, uh, so interesting time. So, Franco, we'd like to move into a, a quick fire question round now. So I won't give you too much time to think about these. But what one thing might not many people know about you? I've kind of covered my astrophysics fans. And, you know, I, I love going to lectures when we was allowed to have lectures. Building my car in the garage is awesome. Some of the things people probably wouldn't know about me, and I think I do this most days, everything I look at, I think lots of people just overcomplicate it. And, and I look at how can we make this achievable and how do we do that? And sometimes just breaking complicated problems down into single steps allows you to do it. While your question is, what does people not know about me? It's building my car. If you, if you step back and looked at that car and said, how the hell did you achieve building this? It is lots and lots of 15, 30-minute processes that I've had to bolt together to get to the end. That's what people don't know about me. So when they ask me a question, how do you feel, what you're working on, how does that work? I might answer the question in a quick way, but in the back of my mind, I'm taking the question apart and thinking, how do we achieve it? That's exactly what I think. And I don't think many people know that. So sometimes I might be in a meeting and I might be the one that puts my hand up and says, hang on, hang on, everyone's agreed around this table, but I'm just not sure. <laughs> I'm just not sure. And I always, and this is my tip out to your listeners, actually, don't feel silly about asking questions. Because what I learned was in meetings, lots of people, oh, yes, 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 yes. I'm the one that puts up my hand and says, but I'm just actually not sure what, what you've just said. Can you just explain that a little bit more? And then the presenter explains it again. And I think, well, but that still doesn't quite add up. And then I can see the people around the table getting a bit frustrated because I've slowed them down a little bit. And the presenter then struggles a little bit because perhaps he didn't quite know what he said. And then the next thing, you know, you see this transformation around the table. And people put their hand and say, I don't get it either. Yeah, no, I don't get it either. And it was because of me. That put, yeah, and, and, that's, and, and that's just the way I am. And, and sometimes I feel a bit different for that. I see it at the SMMT meetings all the time. So I see it when I go to, you know, tables and, and, and so on and so on. I'm always putting my hand up because I want to understand. I'm generally interested in what somebody has just said. And I want to be able to achieve whatever vision it is that they said we want to be able to achieve or whatever goal it is that we're working towards. And it's always me that puts the hand up. Maybe, Mark, maybe the people that I'm sat around the table with just knows that they don't have to put their hand up. We'll just let Franco do it. <laughs> maybe that's what happens. I don't know. But yeah, I, I like to ask questions and I like to understand because I care and I generally want to achieve whatever it is that we agreed to achieve together. And that's why I do that. Good on you, pal. Good on you. Well, everyone needs to be a bit more Franco then, don't they, at times? And uh, in an industry surrounded by acronyms, I mean, goodness me, we talk a different language sometimes. It always it baffles me sometimes. But if you want a quick meeting, then uh, I think the lesson there is don't invite Franco. So if you hadn't have found your path in the industry or career that you're in today, what would your alter, alter ego be doing? 
Uh, my background is from an Italian family and it was always about going out to work and I would love to have gone to uni. I would love to have gone to uni, but it just wasn't on the cards when I was younger. It was about getting yourself a trade. That's not my parents' fault. It's just the upbringing that we had at that time. But if I could go back, I would love to go to uni to study physics. As a job, whether it's paid or unpaid, I would love to carry Brian Cox's flight bags and cases and you, you know what I mean, and hold the microphone for him when he talks. <laughs> you know, it, the, the guy relaxes me so much that these days I end up falling asleep and watching it on the telly because I'm just, I think, oh, this is fantastic. Oh, I love listening to Brian talk and he's so clear. He demonstrates things in such a, oh, well, and I'm off. <laughs> it's just brilliant. So, yeah, I'd love to carry Brian Cox's bags. And maybe, Mark, maybe, you know, I like my toys and I like my drones and my helicopters and all those sorts of things. Maybe they can employ me to take the drone picture or the drone video of him stood on top of the mountain as he's looking around left and right. I could fly that drone for him, couldn't I? <laughs> I might clown him with the drone so that I could take his job. <laughs> I can step in at last minute. But, uh, but yeah, maybe fly the drone for Brian Top. There you go. Oh, oh, if you dear. see him, can you drop in a word for me? Yeah, I was going to say, anyone listening in, or Brian himself listening, if you can make contact, we'll, we'll put you in touch with Franco, and I'm sure there's something you guys can do together. So uh, what's the best bit of business advice you've ever seen, heard, or received? Uh, do you know what? I touched on it just before. Don't be scared to ask questions. Don't be scared to look like a fool. Absolutely put your hand up and ask all the questions that you need to ask so you are absolutely clear on what it is that you and your business are going to be achieving or want to achieve or the direction it wants to go in. You have to absolutely understand it. So the tip there is know who you are. Make sure you know where your managers are in your business. Make sure that you know where your leaders are in your business. And let's make sure those that are leading our business are leaders. So that's my tip, Mark. Might need another podcast to go into that one in a little bit more detail. <laughs> but try to set the team. Well, I think we could do. I still like the ask questions piece because, you know, as a journalist all my career, that's um, I've made a living out of it, really. You ask silly questions and get some good answers. So uh, I'm quite good at that. So final question for you then, Franco, and one I kind of want to distance you from your day job to respond to this one. So this is Franco Iannotta responding rather than anything else. So uh, self-driving vehicles for you, yes or no and why? Uh, yes and no. And the reason why is because I grew up in a world of shifting gears and whipping around corners. And there's lots of us in the industry that did that too. The 2050 world won't be doing any of that. And now we're stuck in the middle of this transition where our children, probably those that are about 10 years old today. So those that are going to be 20 in the next 10 years or so are going to be stuck in the middle. You know, some of it is going to be shifting gears. You know what, they won't be shifting gears, but you know what I mean. Some of it will be self-driving. And so we're going through this transition period. So in answer to your question, yes and no. And my final answer is ask me again next time we get together. So perhaps we'll do another podcast if you'll have me back. Yeah, it's because I've enjoyed myself so much. Perhaps I'll be back in about two years time and we're a little bit closer in our world of driverless technology. And I'll let you know. I'll let you know then. Always end it on a cliffhanger. That's a picture at the moment. You're such a pro, Franco. Such a pro. Goodness me, he's left us with that one. Let's hope I'll catch up with you again before two years. But uh, but no, I will ask you again on a podcast in two years' time where you're at. We'll get a definitive answer out of, out of you. Cool. Thank you, Mark. Absolutely enjoyed that. Really appreciate your time. Absolute pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us and take care of yourself, buddy. Thank you, Mark. See you soon. Bye. 
There we have it then, a whistle-stop tour of the world through the eyes of a great friend and industry character, Franco Iannotta. Bursting with enthusiasm, stemming from his need to know, Franco never fails to entertain, and it's clear his passion for automotive and the sector is unwavering. He's certainly seen plenty within the industry over the years, and without doubt is excited about what is to come as the industry continues its technological evolution. Thank you so much for joining us, Franco, and to everyone for listening in. I hope you've enjoyed it. This has been the ARC360 podcast. Take care and catch up with you all soon.